But of those unhappy ones who were ensnared by Melkor, little is known of a certainty. For who of the living has descended into the pits of Utumno, or has explored the darkness of the councils of Melkor? Yet this is held true by the wise of Eresia, that all those of the Kendi who came into the hands of Melkor, ere Utumno was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs, in envy and mockery of the elves, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the orcs had life, and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar, and naught that had life of its own, nor the semblance of life, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainalundali before the beginning, so say the wise." and deep in their dark hearts the orcs loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And man, I had to read that opening part quite a few times. That, of course, is from The Silmarillion by J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, and of course, we're talking about Tolkien because today's publication date is September the 22nd, which also happens to be the credited birth date of both Frodo and Bilbo Baggins, the hobbits central to J.R.R. Tolkien's saga of Middle-earth. Uh, thus, this has become known as Hobbit Day, which falls during Tolkien Week, <laughs> at least uh, as proposed by the American Tolkien Society in 1978. So this tradition is roughly a month older than I am. That's funny. So it's a week-long festival then. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently a week-long celebration of um, Middle Earth and all things Tolkien. Uh, I was not aware of it until uh, just uh, like last month, and I realized uh-huh. that the publication day lined up perfectly. And I'm like, oh, well, we've already done an episode on the One Ring. Uh, we did another one on Hobbits and how their um, their biology works and how they uh, you know relate to uh, multiple uh, meals per day and mm-hmm. to sunlight. And so I thought, well, we got to come up with something else that we can talk about on Hobbit Day itself. So you wanted to talk about orcs. Uh, I guess you've had Tolkien on the brain all year, right? Are you still uh, are you still reading it with the family? No way. I haven't been reading it. We've been meaning to come back around to Fellowship of the Rings, but uh, instead we just we just got into Star Wars this year. So mm-hmm. uh, that's where we are. But I couldn't I couldn't let the, the 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 stars seem to align on this particular episode. So I thought, well, we've got to we got to do something. And I started looking around. And I thought, well, maybe it's orcs. Orcs are such a central part of the work and something that has been highly influential on fantasy in general, like. Generally speaking, fantasy games, fantasy books, fantasy movies, they're just lousy with orcs. You know, I was trying to think when I first started, when I first became aware of orcs, and I think before I ever read any Tolkien, I played the Warcraft games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which which have orcs in them, which are essentially the palace guards at, at Jabba's palace from Return of the Jedi. Yeah, they're green and they've got tusks and they've got kind of like uh, bulldog faces. Yeah, they have that. They look a lot like those Gamorrean guards from uh, from Jedi. Um, They also, of course, of course, um, that whole gaming system, I think, has its roots, too, in being inspired by uh, the Warhammer uh, games as well. Oh, Uh, really? Yeah, which I'll touch base on that in a little bit, because I think they're very important to the the history of how we interpret orcs. Yeah. 
I I think I've I have always pictured the orcs of Middle Earth in less detail, like you know more abstract, brutish creatures in the you know in the rough semblance of human beings. And part of that might be that I at a very early age I saw at least parts of the original what 1978 uh, animated version where all the animation is pretty much like that. It's kind mm-hmm. of like abstract shapes and uh, less detail, and the orcs and other evil things are often shown in kind of a silhouette. This is the Ralph Bakshi one with the, does it have rotoscoping in it? Rotoscoping animation? I, I believe that's the technique they used. Yeah, it was, um, it, it's, it's interesting. It's a little bit different from the uh, Rankin-Bass uh, uh, animation that you saw on The Hobbit and then saw on The Return of the King, which uh, you know, basically finished what this film uh, didn't. Oh, this is the one where Saruman is Santa Claus. They give him a red robe. <laughs> it's been so long. I don't even. I don't even remember that honestly. Uh, but but I, I I remember flashes of it. It had it had some sort of an impact on me. Um, I I'd say that I, I think in hearing about Middle Earth and all, um, I, I it probably also has a lot to do with like the two earliest stories that I remember my dad telling me were uh, he would tell me about uh, Beowulf and Grendel. So I have this like really early idea of Grendel in my head. And then I remember him telling me about the Battle of Hastings. So I have, I think I ended up sort of cobbling together this, this uh, Middle Earth orc as being a combination of Norseman or Viking and that figure of Grendel. Hmm. But that's just me personally, uh, just based on like where I came into learning about The Hobbit and what I've been exposed to previously. Um, and as, as we're going to discuss here, there's there have subsequently been so many different visions of orcs and what orcs are. And we're still in the process uh, of, of defining and redefining what an orc is. For some reason, I remember thinking that the orcs of the Peter Jackson movies have a very Dickensian villain kind of flair. Like they've got <laughs> this, you know, sinister Cockney accent that you hear. Yeah, the the the, the, the Peter Jackson orcs are 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 very important in our our modern perceptions of them. But but even those are are, are suitably varied. There are a lot of different mm-hmm. visions of what an orc is in those films. They range from like big, uh, like dark brutes to more goblin-y forms. There's like one general that shows up in, I think, Return of the King that has this very like elephant man, um, tumorous appearance. And then by the Hobbit films, they seem to have refined it a little bit to where you have uh, either refined the orc in general or that or just they've decided to portray these sort of misty mountain orcs as being almost kind of uh, Nosferatu in like they, they kind of look like big, beefy Nosferatus in a way in a way mm. that I think really works. Uh, more the classic Max Shrek Nosferatu or the Klaus Kinski Nosferatu? The Max Shredded Nosferatu. That's, <laughs> that's what they are. Like just very, just very beefy. Yeah. Um, Juice to Muscle the max. max. Yeah. Nice. Now, uh, we mentioned uh, mentioned um, uh, Warhammer just a second ago. I, I've long been a fan of uh, of Warhammer and Warhammer 40,000. Uh, one is like the fantasy version. One is essentially like a sci-fi version of the same universe, and it has evolved since then. And you have orcs in both of them. And in both games, orcs are depicted as green-skinned, almost bulldog-like in their cranial structure. And uh, even more to the point, though, these orcs are presented in a manner that I would I would dare describe as fun. 
Uh, they um, orcs are often, you know, serving to, to represent a kind of dark savagery of, of humanity. I'd say that the the orc boys, as they're sometimes called, uh, this with a Z, uh, run counter to that, embodying the spirit that kind of celebrates a kind of goofy primal rebellion, especially in in Warhammer Forty Thousand, the futuristic version, which is a very dark and nihilistic, you know, grim dark kind of fictional setting. The orcs are pretty much the only faction that actually resonate with any lightness and whimsy like you see uh, or the d- d- depictions of them or the the way that uh, various uh, collectors have painted them up and they often have bright colors and kind of a fun goofy quality to them i ran across one i think this is like a current figure where it's like an orc captain and he has like a big pirate hat on and a, a bunch <laughs> of cool colorful iconography they have this kind of a uh, slapdash technology to them uh, they're they're a little bit monsters in Space Jam. <laughs> you remember oh, I, ha- I haven't seen Space Jam, but um, it's when the nerdy aliens get really big and good at sports, and then they become <laughs> the monsters. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess I'm imagining from your telling of it, like, sort of lighthearted monstrosity, kind of cartoonish monstrosity. Yes. Okay. Um, Space Jam never gets too bleak, you know. <laughs> they don't. Space Jam doesn't go full grim dark. <laughs> a grim dark Space Jam reboot that would be uh, that would oh be my something. God, that'd be so good. <laughs> now, this embracing of orc uh, nature, you'll find this elsewhere as well. Uh, in Dungeons and Dragons, of course, one may play a half orc or even full blooded orcs, which allows room for that sort of thing. We'll come back to Dungeons and Dragons in a bit. Uh, but one title, and this is one that our, our former co-host Christian uh, uh, turned me on to. Uh, there's a comic artist by the name of James um, uh, Stoko, I believe. That's S-T-O-K-O-E. And he has this uh, comic series called Orkstain. And it presents a delightfully crude and whimsical vision of a world just overrun with orcs. Uh, the protagonist himself is an orc warrior. And it has this kind of, I would say... You know the art uh, that uh, accompanies the the, the British um, uh, musical um, act, Gorillas. It has oh, like yeah, kind of that yeah. Gorillas tank girl kind of vibe to it. It has this very kind of punk rock aesthetic, which I've uh, I've I've seen I've seen that with orcs elsewhere, where this is kind of convergence of like punk art culture and the embracing of the orc. Yeah, punk monsters. I think is actually a, a pretty good tradition. I don't know how it got started, but I think of in the old uh, the old Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics, like the Bebop and Rocksteady, are very, oh, yeah, very much yeah. like punk monsters. Exactly. Yeah, good point. So what does all this mean? What are orcs, and, and why do they resonate with us? So why don't we continue to tell stories about orcs and involve orcs in our games and our fiction, etc.? Um, can, can we discuss science in relation to orcs? And are there problematic aspects here as well? Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. But the first step, I imagine, is to discuss uh, what Tolkien says in-universe about the creation of the orcs, uh, coming back to our cold opening, and then also discuss where he he even got the name orc itself. All right, well, let's enlist in the orc army. All right. Okay, so in Tolkien's writings, the orcs are the most common evil foot soldier. They're like the ubiquitous enemy. Um, in The Hobbit, we deal more with goblins, which are often understood to be either lesser orcs or a particular species or subspecies of mountain orc. And Tolkien apparently rolled out a few different contradictory origin stories for the orc in his work. But according to the Tolkien Encyclopedia, which is a book I I typically turn to for such matters, uh, they were twisted forms of life that Melkor spawned.
pond in the pits of Utumno. Uh, they served as the bulk of his armies, and then after his defeat, they served as the bulk of Sauron's armies as well. Now, was Melkor the same person as Sauron in an earlier incarnation, or was Melkor the god that Sauron served? My understanding, and uh, this is a good point for us to point out, that neither of us are Tolkien scholars oh, or uh, or profess to be Tolkien experts. <laughs> Robert, it's you're, you keep wanting to do these Tolkien episodes, and then we get the mail from people who are like, actually... <laughs> I know, and I, I I love it. I invite it. I I, I definitely want to hear from uh, from people more knowledgeable uh, in uh, in Tolkien scholarship uh, than I am, or just in general, um, you know, orc orc scholarship, if you will. Uh, now, my, my understanding is that Melkor was the original fallen god mm-hmm. uh, that um, rebelled against everything. Then he was defeated. Sauron, being like a fallen Hephaestus type forge god, mm-hmm. had served Melkor, but with Melkor destroyed or you know taken out of the picture permanently now it's time for sauron to shine basically sauron was melkor's vp okay cool now now we we kicked off the um the episode here with that cold reading about uh, the creation of the orcs in the in the the pits of otumno uh, you know uh, the, the idea that they would have been created in a this sort of blasphemous process that takes place in a a fallen god's dungeons like it was yeah. a, a sort of a mockery of life yeah, the idea that they like captured elves and twisted them through torture into this new terrible form of life, and that the orcs, therefore, were products of pain and hate. They lived only for pain and hate, and outwardly they were, quote, and this is uh, from uh, the Tolkien Encyclopedia, uh, bent, bow-legged, and squat. So they were ape-like in many respects, but cunning and cruel. Their skin looked as if burned, and their eyes were, quote, crimson gashes like narrow slits and black iron grates behind which hot coals burn. Now, there are different varieties of orc, we're told, in Middle-earth, uh, from the goblins of the Misty Mountains to standard orcs, and then later you get these taller, more sun-resistant uh, Urukai orcs that were made by Sauron much later. And it sounds as if the idea is that um, Sauron ends up combining orc stock with human stock to create a more human-statured, day-tolerant trooper. Yeah, and I think that ties into the idea that a lot of creatures in Middle-earth or in Tolkien's world, like if you're a bad creature, you're often sort of confined to a nighttime existence. You can't go out in the sun. Trolls are this way, and the Hobbit trolls are turned to stone when Gandalf tricks yeah. them into staying up till uh, till the sun comes out. And I guess the, the idea is also that maybe the orcs or the goblins just don't really like sunlight. Yeah. Now, uh, the Tolkien Encyclopedia and other sources uh, as well, it has a, you'll find lengthy passages discussing the role of orcs to the history of Middle-earth. Uh, there's, there's no shortage of, of, uh, of information uh, uh, there. Uh, but basically, the idea is that throughout their history, the numbers swell and shrink at times when dark lords rise up and then fall away. Um, when, they, when dark lords come back to power, uh, the orcs are there to fill the ranks of the evil armies. But even when they're defeated, they never completely go away. They kind of shrink to the hidden corners of Middle-earth. Um, and even with the defeat of Sauron and Middle-earth's transformation into a modern world, there's this idea that the orcs are out there somewhere. So that's the the in-universe explanation, uh, or as canon and origin stories can be cobbled together. But of course, we know that J.R.R. Tolkien did not create Middle-earth out of nothing. He forged it out of existing mythological, folkloric, and historic motifs. 
And I would say, actually, maybe more than anything out of linguistic motifs. Yes. You know, the, the Tolkien loved language, and you often get the sense that his story came out of having a word for something. Yeah. You know, like you'd find you'd find a word for something in Old Norse that's just a great word, and, and it almost feels as if the character springs from the sound of the name. Yeah. Sorry, does that not make sense? I, I, no, no, absolutely. I mean, the, you, you really – you can't discuss – Tolkien creating anything without without bringing in language like clearly like that was his 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 primary um, scholarly interest and everything else kind of like springs out of that and then thus that's where a lot of these characters and species come from as well. Yeah. So it seems that Tolkien actually derived the term orc from a usage in Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf is, of course, the the great epic of Anglo-Saxon. It's an epic poem from the early Middle Ages. We don't know exactly when it was composed. It was written in Old English, which is the ancestor to modern English, but also which is, you know, it, it's so unlike modern English that you can't just read it. You know, it's basically like mm. another language. You You need you need a glossary or translation basically to understand it. Uh, and so the term specifically that appears in Beowulf is Orkneas or Orkneas. It is a creature that's mentioned during the introduction of the monster Grendel, you know, the real first big bad that that Beowulf has to fight. Beowulf arrives at, uh, at Hrothgar's Mead Hall and the Mead Hall is being terrorized by attacks from this monster Grendel. And so I'm going to read from the J. Leslie Hall translation of Beowulf in the part that mentions orcs, uh, so or, or the word Orkneos, at least. Hall translates, For that bitter murder, the killing of Abel, all ruling father, the kindred of Cain, crushed with his vengeance. In the feud he rejoiced not, but far away drove him from kindred and kind, that crime to atone for, meter of justice. Thence ill-favored creatures, elves and giants, monsters of ocean, came into being, and the giants that long time grappled with God, he gave them requital." Now, in the Hall translation here, there are a couple of different words that get translated as giants. One is the Old English gigantes, and the other is jotanes, which I think is where we also get the word jotun, like the mm -hmm. Norse mythology giant. Uh, a couple of different kinds of monsters. So in the line that mentions Orkneas, it's jotenas and ilfa, giants and elves, and Orkneas, which I think here is translated as monsters of ocean. But other translations have, have chosen different terms for it, uh, sometimes calling it a, a demon or a goblin or something like that. Uh, there's also an interesting translation note in the J. Leslie Hall version of Beowulf, which notes that when Grindel himself is introduced, the word used to describe him could be translated as demon and often is, or could be translated as stranger. A mm. uh, literary and linguistic conflation of the unfamiliar person with the monster of hell. And J. Leslie Hall actually chooses stranger in, in this translation, making for an interesting set of lines. A foe in the hall building, this horrible stranger, was Grendel entitled, the march-stepper famous, who dwelt in the moorfins, the marsh and the fastness. Ooh, I love that. So if you think of Grendel as a stranger, this gets into some interesting territory about what monstrosity means, and that a yeah. lot of times uh, our, our mythical monsters are sort of ways of mentally metabolizing concepts of, of people who are unfamiliar or who you worry might be threatening to you somehow. 
Yeah, absolutely. But then also just from a surely, like a ma- on the other hand, like just from an imaginative perspective, mm-hmm. like I hear that and I just love the idea of Grindel as this, str- as, as the stranger, as this, you know, this being that is, um, that is almost from another world, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because in many, in many respects he is. Well, and much like the orc that we were just talking about, Grendel here is given an unholy origin story, right? They mm-hmm. say that he is descended from Cain, who in the biblical story murdered his brother Abel. Cain was you know, the third human to exist, and Abel was the fourth. And Cain, I guess, got jealous of Abel having, uh, having good offerings to God that God was very pleased with, and so Cain murdered him. And then God comes to Cain saying, hey, where's your brother? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? So God curses Cain. And sends him off wandering in the wilderness to the land of Nod. And Cain's offspring apparently become the monster Grendel. So it's like there, there's a sort of uh, – there's a generational curse that is passed down for that original crime. Now, in a 19th century glossary of Anglo-Saxon terms, the scholar Thomas Wright notes that orc means possibly hell devil or specter or goblin, uh, and he notes that it is phonetically similar to Orcus, which was a Roman god of the underworld, I think somewhat regularly conflated with Satan during times of, of Christian syncretism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Orcus, uh, of course, has come up on the podcast before. And this also brings to mind um, that, that line from William Blake uh, that, of course, is um, is adapted and switched around a little bit, uh, most more probably more famously to most listeners in Blade Runner. Uh, but that line, fiery, the angels rose as they rose, deep thunder rolled around their shores, indignant burning with the fires of Orc. Oh, yeah, that's come up before. I, I know you like that one. And that's great. I mean, Blake is always great. But Orc there is different. Orc is not uh, so much a monster there as kind of like a – I don't recall exactly. He's some kind of character. Yeah, yeah. You, you're dealing with the, the Blake um, um, uh, cinematic universe there as opposed mm-hmm. to any of these others. Um, I, I should add, add one thing. I, it's, it's interesting that we don't have to really discuss what a goblin is in any of this. Mm-hmm. Um there's something about the goblin in particular that I think you'll find just about everywhere. Like we've discussed um, uh, various Chinese folklores and, uh, and mythologies before that involve something that is translated as a goblin. And it, it, it does seem to suggest that there is just sort of an intrinsic goblinness to the uh, the human imagination. Like there is mm. a space preserved for the goblin uh, that we, we don't even really need to even e- expand on too much. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's just there's a general fear of something that is evil, that is roughly shaped like a human and has human capabilities in a way, but cannot be reasoned with and has no and has no uh, like mercy or morality and is just sort of like meanness and cruelty in human form or roughly human form. Yeah, or even kind of a, I guess sometimes with the goblin, I get a sense of like the, the diminutive nature of the goblins suggest a, like a hidden, a supernatural element to it. Mm-hmm. And even though the, the the idea of Tolkien's orcs, they kind of evolve out of an idea of a goblin, they become something different. They become something more like a human and therefore uh, kind of divorced from like the supernatural world of pure fairies in the same way that Tolkien's elves are something different than like the the ideas of the fair folk or even the uh, uh, Tuatha de Danann uh, that, yeah. that you find um, in Irish mythology. 
Well, yeah. Another thing that's funny is that by the time you get to Tolkien, suddenly elves are thought of as these sort of like superhumans. They're like humans, yeah. but they're they're like so beautiful and so graceful and so rational and good. Um, but but here in in Beowulf, the elves just seem to be another type of monster. They're listed alongside the Jotunas and the monsters of the ocean. I mean, they're in the same line. It's a uh, Jotunas and Ilva and uh, and Orkneus altogether. Now, um, uh, speaking of the idea of, of orc as being related to sea monsters, uh, I, I, of course, looked up orc in uh, Carol Rose's Giants, Monsters, and Dragons, one of my favorite uh, books to uh, to look up various creatures. And, uh, and and actually, she has another book related to fairies. In the fairy book, she has a listing for, for orc, just saying it's one of uh, Tolkien's creations, very short, not much to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the monsters book, she mentions Orc or Orco, a monster described by Pliny the Elder in the Natural History, uh, uh, came out in 77 CE or thereabouts. And it's described as a very large oceanic creature said to be larger than a whale and capable of eating whales. Uh, it was known as Orco later on and referenced in uh, Orlando Furioso in 1516. Oh, yeah, by the poet uh, Lodovico Ariosto. So Orlando Furioso, I must I must admit this. Uh, we were talking about it before we started. I just figured out that this, this epic poem is not about a guy named Orlando Furioso. It means ah. something like Orlando's frenzy or something. Uh, so, so Orlando is the hero of the story, and he slay, I think he slays a lot of monsters in it. Um, but I looked it up in Orlando Furioso. Uh, it's in Canto 17 that the, the Orco monster is mentioned. And the, so I want to read from the William Stuart Rose translation. So uh, we get the narration. While with much solace seated in a round, we from the chase expect our Lord's return, approaching us along the shore, astound the orc, that fearful monster we discern. God grant, fair sir, he never may confound your eyesight with his semblance foul and stern. Better it is of him by fame to hear than to behold him by approaching near." To calculate the grisly monster's height, so measureless is he, exceeds all skill. Of fungus hue, in place of orbs of sight, their sockets two small bones like berries fill. Towards us, as I say, he speeds outright along the shore, and seems a moving hill, tusks jutting out like savage swine he shows, a breast with drivel fowl and pointed nose. <laughs> Okay, so what do we know about this monster? Uh, he's too tall to calculate his height. No one has the skill to calculate how high he is. And that, that, that makes it sound like he must be, like, leaving the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, he also has – he's of fungus hue. And I guess there are funguses of a lot of different hues. And he uh, – in place of eyeballs, he has bones that are like berries. Now, uh, up until that point, I'm definitely picturing what I think this is. But then the tusks kind of throw it off because the tusks sound like more something you would see, of course, in you know an actual tusk sea creature, but also in the fabulous uh, chimerical uh, sea monster that you see in various maps. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like the kind that's like a wild boar's face on a whale's yeah. body. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think something like that might be kind of imagined here, except he's advancing along the shore. So he seems to be able to leave the water. Um, I don't know. Well, I, it brings to mind, uh, and, and because there does seem to be, there is a connection here. Uh, so when you read this, I could not help but picture 
the orca, the the killer whale, uh-huh. you know, because there's something about like, you know, fungus hue uh, in place of orbs of sight, imagining those big white eye spots that are, of course, not their eyes, even though it's it's almost impossible to look at a killer whale and not think of that as their eyes. Uh-huh. Their eyes are actually much, uh, you know, smaller um, and are there. Those big eye spots, I think, actually make killer whales cuter than, yeah, than they, they would they, be otherwise. They, they look less like the um, like the vicious wolves of the, the sea <laughs> that they are. Um, but, but yeah, there is this connection uh, between Orcus and um, Orcinus orca. That's the, uh, the scientific name for killer whales. Orcinus meaning belonging to Orcus or simply the kingdom of the dead. Uh, the Roman idea of orc, orco sea monsters uh, was or became associated with the killer whale. Yeah, I guess that's right. And and I want to be clear. I think a minute ago we we, we described the killer whale as vicious, which we don't mean in a in a negative moral sense, but we do mean in a descriptive sense about like their behavior as they prey on sharks, which is just awesome. Uh, yeah, they as when concerning um, orcas and their their natural prey, uh, I think viciousness is a, a well deserved adjective. You know, watch any nature documentary about their their hunting of baby whales, and you will agree. Yeah. Um, but then again, hey, it's uh, that that's the world. They're just doing their part in it. The blessings of Melkor. <laughs> All right. On that note, uh, we're going to take a break. But when we come back, we'll talk more about orcs. All right, we're back. Now, there are certainly a number of ways to, to crunch the idea of an orc, uh, the, 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 of Tolkien's orc, a humanoid other that is also not human in significant ways. Uh, I, I have to come back to something that, um, that author uh, Terrence Hawkins uh, uh, wrote about in his novel uh, American Neolithic, of which there's a revised edition out, I believe. Uh, it has to do with a Neanderthal surviving into, uh, into modern uh, days. Uh, but there's this wonderful line where uh, the Neanderthal character is speaking to the reader and says, quote, You, for whom we have always been the other, our existence buried deep in your racial memories since the time when glaciers uh, girdled the world and the contest between man and animal was yet to be decided. We haunt your legends as we haunt your dreams, misshapen versions of yourself, bad copies, formerly kobolds or gremlins, now morlocks and orcs. Um, so, so in this line, basically, it's uh, uh, the idea is that uh, there might be some connection between the idea of orcs or morlocks or other uh, type uh, beings and maybe the, the, the notion that humans did live alongside Neanderthals for a period of time and played at least some role in their destruction. Well, depending on how you define destruction, because, of course, we, yeah. we do see the, the disappearance of the Neanderthal as a uh, distinct branch of the Homo genus, but also it, it does appear that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals also intermingled. Yeah, uh, we went. Uh, let's see, we went a good deal into this in our almost cannibals episode, because we were basically uh, there was one point we were discussing the idea of cannibalism um, by Neanderthals by early humans, and you see examples of cannibalism in both groups, but there's less evidence to suggest that say humans ate all the Neanderthals or that Neanderthals <laughs> ate humans. Um, I mean, it, it basically, it, there are a number of open questions about what exactly happened between uh, Neanderthals and, and humans, to what extent 
anything happened. Um, I, a lot of sources seem to indicate that there was there was probably at least a competition for resources, if not something more you know nefarious. Yeah. Uh, with of course, in the end, dolls eventually um, you know, fading away, uh, leaving only us. Uh, but but well, I take that back. Also, some trace of Neanderthals within our own uh, genetics. Now, while it's interesting to think of a true humanoid other and how human society would process its downfall, uh, there's another huge issue to consider, and that is that that is our tendency to dehumanize due to xenophobic, nationalistic, uh, and or racist attitudes. And, and this is an issue that certainly comes up in the consideration of orcs. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult things when you dig into the history of, of uh, ideas about monsters, as much as we love them today and they're fun in the, in the forms we have them, they may often have their origins in ideas that if we were to fully understand them, we would find quite repugnant. I mean, I think a lot yeah. of the origins of monster legends are probably in some process of dehumanizing people who are human. Yeah, it's and it, it is. It's truly heartbreaking because you want monsters to be this pure escapism. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, yeah, when you start pulling the various threads, you often find yourself confronting something like this. And if nothing else, you confront the, you know, the, the basic idea that that these that monsters always emerge from, if not one particular time, they emerge out of different times. Mm -hmm. And and Tolkien's orcs, especially, I mean, they're emerging out of 20th century uh, Europe, uh, you know, out of a, a, a period during which there were uh, two devastating world wars. Uh, certainly there's plenty of, of European racism and xenophobia going around at the time, the, the wartime demonization of the enemy. Uh, like this, these are all elements in the soup. No matter, no matter how much you want to focus on these just being purely fictional beings in, a, in, a, in another world or in a world that is inspired purely out of like the scholarly consideration of myths and, and fairy tales. Right. I mean, I think at the very least, what you can definitely say about the orc, no, no matter what else we know about them, is that they are a dehumanized form of the enemy to be represented yeah. in war. Um, and in a way, you know, if, if Tolkien was trying to consciously sort of recreate something like a mythology, we see something like this in lots of mythologies. You know, it, it is, of course, common for humans to 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 dehumanize their enemies and to think of them as something you know uh, less than the people like us Right. And and I mean, we we see this everywhere. I mean, this is one of the reasons that arguably that zombie fiction has been so, so successful is that it presents a completely, um, you know, ethically acceptable enemy that can just be eradicated without any second consideration. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think we, that, you know, you remember when we did um, the episode about daydreaming and one of the studies mm -hmm. we looked at discovered that one of the most common things that people daydream about is they just sort of fantasize about violent conflict that people, yeah. they think like, Oh, if there was a fight, what would I do? Uh, you know, there, there's this kind of thing. And so obviously people's brains are drawn to this kind of scenario to fantasize about, you know, for understandable reasons, like you, <laughs> <laughs> like you want to, you like that, that's where a lot of potential risk lies. And you want to imagine like, well, what could I do to get out of this? How could I win that kind of thing? But then also, the, you know, I think about in Lord of the Rings, there's a part where Samwise Gamgee, uh, he, he recognizes a fallen soldier from the other side, from somebody who's fighting uh, for Sauron, but is a human fighting for Sauron, one of the 
for one of the men from Harad. And mm. Samwise uh, looks at him and he feels bad. He says, wait a minute, you know, was this man really evil or what kind of lies or threats brought him here so far from home? And wouldn't he rather be living at peace? Uh, That's interesting. It's a kind of strange moment where suddenly out of this otherwise kind of Manichaean uh, good versus evil war uh, fantasy war with a with a non-human enemy suddenly there's this this breakthrough where one of the characters on the supposed good side thinks wait a minute aren't the people on the other side humans too aren't they you know don't they have lives don't they have moral complexities behind their story this is one of the things that you see time and time again uh, in in this discussion and i do want to i want to drive home that this is a, a this has been a topic of of continual consideration by Tolkien scholars and literary cultural scholars alike, both in reference to the original works and the you know the original writings of J.R.R. Tolkien and these various film art, uh, incarnations. Because on one hand, yeah, like there's this idea if you read um, uh, you know like in our uh, our cold opening, this idea of the orcs as just this purely inhuman. Thing, just made out of savagery, uh, you know that like that sounds more in keeping with a zombie myth, right? Just like no ethical problems at all. But uh, but along the lines of this example of a human fighting for Sauron, there are plenty of examples in the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien does engage in a certain humanization of the orcs, like they're given some sense of individuality. Mm-hmm. I believe there you know scenes where uh, they've been taken captive by the orcs and they're overhearing orc conversations. Uh, yeah, Merry and Pippin when they're kidnapped by the orcs. They sort of interact with the orcs in a way that suggests to me, at least, that the orcs are sentient. You yeah, know, they're they're not like they're not like robots. You know, they're they're not just evil killing machines. Like they've got motivations of their own. Yeah, so that makes everything a lot more complicated. Everything we're about to talk about a lot more complicated. Yeah. Um, now we can't possibly cover the entire discourse on this topic. Uh, it looks like there's some very good sources out there that you can find. I, I ran across a, a book that I is cited in a source that I'm going to mention by uh, Demetra Femi titled Tolkien Race and Cultural History that is supposedly quite good. Uh, but the, some of the key issues that are often brought up about orcs are that orcs are clearly described as having dark skin. Orcs are described as being, quote, unquote, slant-eyed. And there's this sense that, yeah, orcs are human-shaped and are more or less human-like, but then they are also less than human or described as less than human. And it is uh, often suggested that, like, you know, nothing but brutal violence against the orcs is is um, permissible and that, um, you know, that, that is that they, they should just be eradicated by the, the higher um, uh, species of Middle-earth. And I mean, some of this, I think, might be uh, getting back to the the Tolkien um, duality here. I think part of it is just by if you start telling stories about something, you're going to end up humanizing it. Mm -hmm. So I can see where you could start with your with your uh, you know your completely um, you know uh, irredeemable enemy, but then you, you you can't help but. But 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 humanize it a bit in the same way that, um, say, like in um, in the Clone Wars, you know, you have the, the droid army. The droids are like a, a, a great example of an enemy army that is set up to be easily and, and uh, dis, uh, dispatched without any ethical quandaries. Yeah. And you still see this kind of creep in uh, Clone Wars uh, storytelling in which you'll you'll end up sympathizing with the droids. You'll, you can't help but uh, but apply, uh, you know, sort of human characteristics to the droids at times. Mm-hmm. 
Now, one of the the works I was looking at for this is a, a paper by Robert T. Talley Jr. Uh, Let us now praise famous orcs, simple humanity in Tolkien's Inhuman Creatures. This was published in Mythlore back in 2010, and um, he he looks at uh, at both sides of the of the um, the discussion here basically now tally ultimately does not himself accuse tolkien of racism but he does outline much of the evidence that can be cited in such a charge admitting quote it is true that no one can read about the quote swart and quote slant-eyed orcs so many times without becoming offended and he also points out that tolkien himself notoriously wrote in one of his letters quote the orcs are definitely stated to be corruptions of the human form seen in elves and men they they are or were squat, broad, flat-nosed, sallow-skinned, with wide mouths and slant eyes. In fact, degraded and repulsive versions of the, to Europeans, least lovely Mongol types. Oh, uh, that is not a good sentiment. Yeah. And according to Anderson uh, the III in Why is the Only Good Orc a Dead Orc, published in MFS Modern Fiction Studies, uh, Tolkien's friend uh, C.S. Lewis even made passing mention of racism in light of the book's first publication, but again, but apparently did not pursue the idea all that much. So, you know, it seems to have been something that was at least in the conversation concerning orcs uh, for quite some time, and, and maybe even on on Tolkien's mind, at least at times. I mean, I, I can't help but I'd forgotten that passage about the human servants of, of Mordor, but that's uh, interesting as well. Uh, I've also seen it argued that this sort of view of the, the racial enemy uh, tied up with the, 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 the orc uh, was also readily exhibited in World War I and World War II uh, propaganda against both Germans and the Japanese, where you see like a monstrous racial version of the enemy depicted in propaganda posters. And then on top of that, we're talking about a, an era of eugenics, uh, ideas of racial purity, um, all that going on in the background. And this is ultimately, again, the world that these works emerge from. Um, now, Femi um, concludes, according to, to Tally, that, that Tolkien's, quote, objectionable racial uh, characterizations are consistent with the discourse of his time and in, in any event consistent with the, quote, hierarchical world in which his mythic history unfolds. Now, that being said, I don't think it, that makes it any, any easier for modern uh, readers or viewers, you know, once you start focusing on these, these elements, once you start, you know, noticing them in your, your reading of the text or the viewing of the, the movies that spawn from them. You know, you see modern adaptations dealing with this in, in almost diametrically opposed ways, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because one way you could deal with it is to try to embrace even harder uh, the the distinctions that would make you know whatever kind of like monster enemy it is it is clearly not human you know you want to go full zombie or full robot right uh, to suggest that like no 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 the orcs can't be they're not a metaphor for like in any people they're just they're not human at all they're like you know bio robots or something and then the other direction would be to actually try to humanize them more and make them seem more complicated but yeah it, it is true I mean like it much fantasy and epic writing is this way, but as they they currently exist in the story, the orcs are in this uncomfortable middle position where they are sort of human, but they're 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 not treated with the fairness that we would hope should be afforded to all sentient creatures. Yeah, and it's I guess that's the it's the ambiguity of it that makes it difficult and. Um, you know, and it's also I would say with Tolkien, it doesn't seem to be nearly as as clear-cut a situation as we have, say, with H.P. Lovecraft, you know, oh, who, yeah. who we have such, you know, damning examples of racist sentiment in his, in his 
private letters and then and then when you look at his works of fiction in light of those letters i mean it's just it's um you know you you, you can't ignore these elements in his work um you know, Tolkien's writings certainly have been accused of containing wrong or outmoded attitudes to race, with orcs very much at the center of all of this. Uh, but but then you, I mean, you have defenders pointing out, well, okay, Tolkien himself was anti-racist, both in peacetime and during the two world wars. I don't know, you're still left with, with what we still have, just continual discussion of, like, how are we supposed to process um, Tolkien's work as a, as a modern consumer and a modern thinker? Well, I mean, I guess one of the ways that we're left to deal with it is just to uh, is to don't let yourself get Lord of the Rings brain, or at least certainly don't let yourself get orc brain uh, thinking outside of the the fantasy of the text. You know, the real world does not have orcs in it. Like, you know, all the people, even people you might be in conflict against, are human. And that, you know, and, and to maybe lean more into the Samwise Gamgee way of thinking about things to, to always try to remember that even somebody who you might be at war with is, is still a human and they've got their own motivations. They are morally complex in the same way that you are. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think it, one of Tolkien's letters, he even said something similar where he's like, well, in the real world, you have orcs on both sides of a conflict. Yeah. Um, because I guess in, in a sense, the orcs, the orcs is us, right? Uh I, I want to note, too, that uh, I thought Dungeons & Dragons, um, uh, the game, the, the company behind it, they recently uh, made mention of summing this, some of this concerning orcs in a diversity statement. Uh, they, they put this out. This was this year. They uh, wrote, quote, Throughout the 50-year history of D&D, some of the peoples in the game, orcs and drow being two prime examples, have been characterized as monstrous and evil, using descriptions that are painfully reminiscent of how real-world ethnic groups have been and continue to be denigrated. That's just just not right, and it's not something we believe in. Despite our conscious efforts to the contrary, we have allowed some of those old descriptions to reappear in the game. We recognize that to live our values, we have to do an even better job in handling these issues. If we make mistakes, our priority is to make things right. And then they go on to stress a forward-facing commitment to portraying orcs and drow as, quote, just as morally and culturally complex as other peoples, which uh, which I think is, is a way to go, especially considering and orcs and drow have such a prominent role in Dungeons and Dragons uh, storytelling, the drow being the, the the dark elves of the Underdark. Yeah. The more I think about it, the more I think that the the clear dividing line really, I guess, would have to be sentience, right? That there mm-hmm. th- there was an idea here, maybe in uh, older versions of D&D, apparently somewhat ambiguously represented in, in Lord of the Rings, that there are some types of people or types of creatures that are sentient. They're thinking beings like us, but they are also wholly evil. Right. And in a way that's just sort of, that's sort of self-contradictory, right? Like, you know, a sentient being uh, couldn't be as an entire people wholly evil because their sentience would sort of necessarily imply that there is, you know, that there is moral complexity to them. Yeah, I mean, it works when you're talking about, I mean, basically it comes down to the alignment system in Dungeons and Dragons, which on an individual level doesn't really work in the real world. Like, I mean, the idea, I mean, am I, am I neutral evil or am I, am I neutral good? Like, mm-hmm. I, I think in reality, we have multiple alignments in ourselves at all times. And it's about, <laughs> it's about nurturing the alignments that are the person we want to be, you know? And then certainly when you get into a species-wide alignment, like what is humanity's alignment? 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on what we're doing at any given time. It depends on what you're focusing on. I mean, there are, there are aspects of humanity's, um, you know, role in the world that are that would seem, you know, uh, at least lawful evil, if or neutral evil, and there are other things that are that are not so. So, it, yeah, it, it's it's one of these things that whether it works well within a game context, as long as you're not thinking too hard about it, I guess. I mean, ultimately, I don't think it's ever going to go away, the convention of having uh, various types of fantasy storytelling in which there is some kind of conflict and the enemy of the heroes is is an army of monsters. But I guess that mindset has its its place within fiction as just the same way a horror mindset does or anything like that. You know, don't pull it out into the real world and try to use it on humans. Yeah. All right. On that note, we're going to take a break, but we'll be right back. All right, we're back. So let's let's move back uh, to the in-universe concept of the orc and consider how we might apply uh, science to the situation. So uh, first of all, I'd, I'd like to refer uh, back to the writings of R. Scott Baker, who I uh, mentioned on the show before, and uh, heck, he's been on the show a couple times, hasn't he? Uh, but uh, he, he wrote this second apocalypse saga, which takes a lot of inspiration from Tolkien, but applies a different uh, philosophical and uh, at times science fictional uh, lens to everything. And in the place of orcs, he presents these creatures uh, that are called the Shrank, uh, which are described as one of the, the quote-unquote weapon races that were engineered by the, the big baddies in this series, the, uh, the alien uh, Inkarai. So these are depraved, like thoroughly inhuman creatures from another world, the, the Inkarai, and they've taken members of the elf-like non-men uh, in this world, and they've used uh, the techni or the old science to twist them into savage creatures of the basest and most violent instinct, uh, often described as retaining the beautiful faces of the non-men, only twisted uh, with like raw, violent emotion and uh, with kind of emaciated bodies. And so they're, they're engineered to combat the non-men warriors while also consisting on next to nothing. Like they were told that they, they just, they live off of grubs uh, and insects that they find uh, uh, on as they scavenge other lands that are otherwise fruitless, that could otherwise not support an army at all. And they're all part of the scheme to, uh, you know, essentially uh, destroy the world and uh, eradicate conscious beings from it. And so I think it's an interesting take on the idea of an orc, uh, or at least an orc as an engineered warrior being, more or less a, an organic robot made for savagery and war that is itself incapable of self-reflection. Uh, and if you are indeed the, you know, the Inkarai or a dark lord of Middle-earth, it makes sense uh, I guess, to create such servants. Uh, and indeed, this whole concept get, probably gets closer to the idea of like a zombie army or a droid army or a subservient reanimated skeleton army, you know, something that is just purely the tool of the great adversary. Well, yeah, and tying into something I was talking about earlier, it seems to me significant, probably the most significant thing that uh, they are imagined as, as basically being not sentient or not able to reflect on their own behavior yeah. Which, I mean, at that point, it does seem like that being probably does lack whatever it is that, that we think of as most significant to, to be human, right? Like, if you, right. you know, you're not capable of reflecting on your own behavior. Yeah. And, and the, with Baker's work, yeah, there's this idea, first of all, that it, it, it is not conscious. He's, you know, he's going to tell you if a creature's conscious or not. That's kind of his whole thing. Uh, but then also the <laughs> idea that they are definitely engineered. They are a thing that is created. They are a, a new creation based on, uh, you know, some designs or raw materials from this other species. Mm -hmm. 
You know, Peter Watts in the novel Echopraxia, I, I recall imagines something like this, but it is a type of human soldier who has had their nervous system modified essentially so that they have the ability to at will turn off their consciousness during combat, essentially to mm. become a more efficient killer. Uh, so the brain still works the same, except it's just not conscious while it's fighting. And apparently this makes you better at being a soldier. Interesting. Um, so, so I think these these are interesting ways to think of a particular like weapon species in a fantasy or sci-fi context. Uh, but, but I was also interested to see what else could be gleaned science-wise from the orcs of Middle Earth. So I turned to the book The Science of Middle Earth by Henry Gee, who is uh, himself a longtime editor at the science journal Nature, as well as a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist. And so he covers a great deal up from Middle Earth in this book. But beginning with the sixth chapter, uh, he begins to discuss orcs a bit. And the sixth uh, chapter is titled Inventing the Orcs. Um, and he spends a fair amount of time discussing some of what we've already discussed, like where do we get the word orc? What does it mean? It's ties into mythology. Uh, but uh, he also points out, OK, let's let's talk about how how they're made and how they reproduce. So he starts by pointing out that there's a fair amount of incongruity concerning the origins of orcs in Tolkien's Middle Earth. Um, you can look at various descriptions and cinematic depictions uh, that on one hand make them look like they're bred, and on another it looks like they're created via torture. Um, and if it's torture, are we talking about something that is more, is this the way we're describing something that's being done to the body that can't be understood, like something like the the techne, something like hmm. a sci-fi genetic engineering, or is it something psychological, right? Uh, I seem to recall in the Peter Jackson movie that at least some of them, maybe this was only the Urukai or or maybe it was all of the orcs, but somehow the the servants of Saruman were being like grown out of the earth, like they came up out of the ground. Yeah, that, that's and that's something that uh, the Guy uh, discusses as well. Yeah, the, this idea that that there's something that's just like pulled out of the earth, like this sort of primal creation. They're just made of mud and stone, um, or maybe they're plants or fungus. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe there's some sort of fungal element as well. Um, so uh, you didn't get into the, fun, the now. Now I'm thinking about the fungal orc idea. That's a whole different theory. But uh, but but the, the author here he does discuss uh, one interesting evolutionary aspect of orcs in Tolkien, and that is that we have in an orc army a collection of varying orc subspecies, which he says would ultimately fit well with the idea that orcs have in periods of decline withdrawn to various corners of the world. You know, this this bunch withdraws to the misty mountains. This one withdraws to these wastelands over here, etc. Mm -hmm. So he writes the following, quote, the enormous variety of orcs, which as it turns out is crucial to the story, can be seen as a consequence of the smallness and isolation of populations evolving in their own particular ways to suit local conditions. Their isolation enhanced by mutual antipathy and incomprehension. Evolutionary theory tells us that evolution happens faster and has more idiosyncratic results when populations are small and isolated. So Tolkien's portrait of the orcs as a collection of very diverse kindreds is biologically very accurate, except that is for one thing sex you know one thing you could not accuse uh the lord of the rings of is having too much sex in it yeah <laughs> yeah apparently there have been there uh mentions, mentions one um, paper that is like saying there's no sex in middle earth like what does that mean uh like if you take that literally does it mean like there's no there like sex sexual reproduction is not a thing in middle earth um i think that would probably be going a bit far but 
in trying to piece together exactly where orcs come from and how they reproduce, it, it does become a little sticky. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there is remarkably little, little sex in Lord of the Rings. I mean, people are described as descending from parents basically. So you're, yeah. you imagine there is some sexual reproduction going on. Uh, I remember, uh, Gimli at some point gets very, um, I don't know, excited about the idea of how beautiful Galadriel is, but they're just not very sexually charged stories. Uh, and this is kind of interesting if if Tolkien is in a way trying to create a, a, a sort of epic mythology because, I don't know, most world mythologies are pretty crammed with sex. Yeah. I mean, people are always be, be, be getting other folks, right? Yeah. Um, whereas yeah, in the, the Tolkien books, like even with the orcs, there's occasionally like reference to one being the son of another, you know, of, of parentage, but there's not a lot of detail there. Uh, and certainly there are no scenes depicting it. So Guy basically points out, well, if we're talking about evolution and, and the biology, the orc, like sex is obviously an important part of the equation. But of course, we have little or no evidence of orc sex in the books, um, which... I don't know. I, that seems a little maybe nitpicky uh, to, to 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 say, uh, but uh, but because there I don't know. There are apparently five references to orc reproduction aside from discussion of creation or breeding by others, which uh, Gee thinks is uh, is minuscule. But to me, that kind of sounds like a lot. I would if you had to, if you asked me to guess how many references to orc reproduction there are in the book, <laughs> I would have guessed like maybe one. I would have guessed uh, like, zero. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there. I vaguely remember a passage where one character talking about, well, the orcs have been reproducing in the mountains. There are a lot of them. Um, like, that would have been the only one that would have come to my mind. Not only is there no mention of... Um of, of actual orc sex, there's no mention of female orcs, and this is perhaps more significant. Now, naturally, this doesn't mean there were no female orcs, nor does it mean that there was no orc sex. Uh, you know, no more than the absence of, of sex from the rest of the books mean that sex didn't exist for other species of Middle Earth. Uh, but he, he does point out that the idea, you know, that we could compare this to the idea of a purely manufactured orc species, much in the same way that the, you know, the clones and the droids in Star Wars are are created, and it would this would actually be in in keeping with the industrialized warfare of the world wars, uh, you know, full of mechanized artillery and this uh, overall degradation of the individual soldier, as well as the overall quote emasculating effects of industrialization in the world. So, in other words, perhaps there's no female or or male orc at all. There's only just neutral flesh machines that serve this fallen god. You know, it's interesting that Tolkien was was very uh, he would very strenuously reject the idea that Lord of the Rings was an allegory for any particular war. Like, I think the mm -hmm. thing most often raised is like people saying like, "Oh, I see. You know, it's supposed to be about World War II and Hitler is Sauron yeah. and you know the orcs are the Nazis and all that." Which, I mean, obviously coming out of the World War II era, it would probably be hard not to try to make that comparison in in like an epic struggle. Yeah. But Tolkien always like he he thoroughly rejected the idea that Lord of the Rings was an allegory for any particular historical events on Earth. You know, he he in fact thought allegories were quite stupid and he did not like them. <laughs> but nevertheless, this is one where it's like really hard to miss that what would seem like allegorical significance, the way that the the Mordor war machine in it has these tones that so resemble the production lines of mechanized warfare going into World War II. 
Yeah, yeah, indeed. In fact, this was interesting. I'd never heard this, but Guy uh, uh, pointed out in the book as well that there's an earlier version of the lost tale, The Fall of Gondolin, uh, which features a siege not by orcs and trolls, but by, quote, vast articulated fire-breathing machines. Uh, Tolkien apparently later abandoned this idea in favor of living creatures, you know, the orcs, the trolls, etc. But at least at one point, there was this vision of the, the armies of Mordor being like mechanical industrial creations. Yeah, and I think that's it's there in the book still, even though the orcs are biological in some way, mythological, biological. The the armies of Mordor, I think, are very much seen as like a sort of uh, an industrializing wave, something that destroys the natural landscape and replaces it with industry and machinery and ash and smoke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's and certainly you look at Mordor and what is Mordor but this sort of geologic vision of like pure industrial doom, right? Yeah, I mean, no, yeah, yeah no, no trees grow there. You know, it's just like a it's it's a vast asphalt parking lot full of factories for weapons. Yeah, its exports are um, war uh, weapons and and uh, volcanic ash. That yeah. seems to be it. Now, um, now, all this being said, there are mentions to mention of orcs like breeding in the wild. So they do seem to reproduce in the wild in some manner. But it, who knows? It could be like a Jurassic Park situation, right? Uh, where there's some sort of uh, <laughs> you know mutation that observe, that, that occurs or something. Um, you know, Guy suggests okay, they're making maybe they their lay, own lysine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe G suggests well, maybe orcs lay eggs. Maybe that's what it is. Uh, uh, he ultimately, says you know if if it's there are a number of different ideas you could propose since there's no real discussion of it in the book, as long as it doesn't break anything else in the book. I mean, it's all kind of fair game. Uh, like he has he has some fun with the idea that perhaps orcs are eusocial insects and there's like an unseen orc queen that does all the egg production. Uh, and indeed, he points out that the goblins of the Misty Mountains and the uh, and the, the orcs of Moria uh, behave much like an ant colony in some respects. That would be interesting, but again, I think in the the few glimpses we do get into orc psychology, the orcs seem far too selfish and and individualistic to be eusocial yeah. uh, animals, right? Like, I mean, the like the individual worker ant's own bodily existence matters quite little to it compared yeah. to you know protecting the queen and the reproductive possibilities of the hive. Individual orcs really do seem to sort of be in it for themselves when they can, you know, when they think they can get away with something. Yeah, absolutely. Now, now another idea that he brings up is, okay, perhaps orcs reproduce by uh, uh, par- parthenogenesis or cloning. Uh, you know, he writes that this could work well, uh, especially when you're thinking about the shrinking habitats that orcs have during their times of decline. But this would also mean that all orcs would inherently need to be female, which also might work with the fact that there's, you know, never any mention of male and female orcs. Orcs are kind of presented as sexless, even though they're, you know, they're, they're described with, with male terminology. I mean, maybe we're just talking about a, an all-female species. Maybe we're just getting the story told through the, like, paternalistic uh, lens of how, how the men and the elves view things. Yeah, could be. Oh, and speaking of elves, another thing that he brings up is, okay, if we go back to this other origin story, the idea that that uh, that uh, Morgoth or Melkor, that they, they basically like tortured the elves uh, in order to make orcs. Well, he points out that, okay, well, if you just because you if you were to torture a bunch of elves and break them and like and so forth, 
and then have them breed them, you're still go- you're not going to produce orcs. You're going to produce more elves. Um, <laughs> you know, and then certainly they could, you know, the, the Dark Lord could use this technique over time to, uh, you know, encourage orcish traits, uh, you, know, and, you know, adapt to a hellish dungeon environment. But this would ultimately require periods of evolutionary time that are far beyond anything we're presented with in the Middle Earth timeline. No, I mean, yeah, the, the, this is a, a more mythological way of imagining how traits are established in a species. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of a magical Lamarckian. Yeah, and, and he writes that ultimately Tolkien was, of course, more concerned, well, certainly with, with linguistic aspects of everything. Like, what does it mean that orcs have a language, that orcs speak mm-hmm. while well, they speak in a more primitive tongue, you know, that sort of thing. But then also Tolkien was more concerned with theological ramifications, like what happens to the soul of the elf if it is made into an orc, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this whole line of thinking as well. So all of this was far more on Tolkien's uh, uh, brain as opposed to, you know, evolutionary biology. But what if everything in Middle Earth is actually a mushroom? Like absolutely everything, even the ants, uh-huh. mushrooms. Uh, it's, 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 I'll have to carry that with me on the next reread. Oh, I want to come back to I want to come back to ants uh, this October because I've got a I've got almost kind of like an evil int thing I want to do. Oh, well, that sounds promising to me. So let's see. At this point, we've talked about, you know, orcs as a as a problem faced by uh, the other species of Middle Earth. We've talked about problematic aspects uh, of, uh, of of the orc as a fictional creation. We've talked about the problems with orc reproduction or figuring out exactly what orc reproduction consists of. But I understand you have you have one more orc problem for us here, Joe. Well, so this only relates to hobbits and orcs in a completely arbitrary way, but it's actually, I think it's maybe the most delightful of all the things that we're going to talk about today. All right, um, let's do it. So if you're a puzzle nerd, there's actually going to be a puzzle that you can pause the episode to try to solve. And this is going to be the hobbits and orcs problem. Now, my main source here is a chapter in the Cambridge Handbook of Thinking and Reasoning, which is just the jolliest of reads. Uh, But it's actually more interesting than you might expect. That sounds incredibly dry. It's only somewhat dry. Uh, But specifically, I'm looking at a chapter on problem solving by Laura R. Novick, who is at Vanderbilt University, and Miriam Bassock, who is at the University of Washington. Both are psychology professors who study cognition and problem solving. Now, the study of problem solving is actually a, a really fascinating field or combination of fields. It's highly relevant to our lives. And I would say, to be fair, it encompasses it encompasses actually at least two main questions that are very different from one another. One is a question primarily for mathematics and computer science, and this is the study of problem-solving algorithms, such as those for search or sorting, and the study of which methods are actually the most efficient at solving different kinds of problems. The other question is one for psychology and cognitive neuroscience, which is regardless of what methods are actually the most efficient, what do our brains tend to do? You know, when a human is faced with a problem, what kinds of algorithms and methods do we actually use in practice? Okay. So where do the orcs come in? Well, one puzzle that has been used to study human tendencies in problem solving is known as the hobbits and orcs problem. And it's a variation on the classic river crossing puzzle. Robert, have you ever done one of these where, you know, you've got a you got a wolf and a sheep and a cabbage all together on one side of a river and you got to figure out how to get them across? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I don't I don't have a strong memory of this now. Okay, well, 
here's this version. Okay, we're going to go to the Brandywine River, the one that, that separates, uh, I believe, Bree from Buckland. Now, at the Brandywine River, on the north side of the river, you've got three hobbits and three orcs. And your goal is to get all six creatures across the river to the other side. Now, there's a boat that you can use to ferry them across, but there are a couple of major limitations. First of all, the boat can only hold two creatures at a time, and there always has to be at least one creature, at least one hobbit or orc in the boat in order to row it. So you can't send the boat across the river empty. Second, you can never leave hobbits in a place where they are outnumbered by orcs, or, of course, the orcs will eat them. And now your goal in this problem is to figure out what sequence of steps you can use to get all the hobbits and the orcs to the other side of the river uh, without breaking any of the rules. Now, it's not necessary, but if you do want to pause the episode here and try to solve the puzzle yourself, go for it. I'll give you a hint that it can be solved in what's usually considered 14 steps or 14 stages. Okay, so I'm not going to read out all of the steps to the solution here, but you can look it up and find it online. If you're stumped, I'm sure just Google it. It'll come up. Um, one reason this particular puzzle is useful for studying problem solving is in studying what's known as the hill climbing heuristic. Now here, uh, Novik and Basok described the hill climbing heuristic as a problem solving technique in which, quote, at each step, the solver applies the operator that yields a new state that appears to be the most similar to the goal state. In other words, you know what your end goal looks like, and at each step you do whatever it is that appears to get you into a state that looks more similar to the goal state. So if your goal is to get to the highest altitude, at each step you just try going uphill, hence hill climbing. Now, studies in cognitive psychology show that we use the hill climbing heuristic a lot. Uh, Novik and Basak cite the example of Chronicle, McGregor, and Ormerod in 2004, who found that people naturally use the hill climbing heuristic in a task that involved sorting coins into a particular order. What you probably do is just like keep moving the coins in a way that makes them look closer to the final order they're supposed to be in until you get there. In the context of the Hobbits and Orcs game, hill climbing would mean that at each stage, you just try to find whatever legal move will get the most creatures to the goal side of the river and off of the starting side of the river without breaking the rules. And studies have found that people do use the hill climbing heuristic to generate steps when solving the hobbits and orcs problem. And for the most part, it works. But also, two studies by Thomas and Greeno, both in 1974, found that people hit a major roadblock around step number seven or eight in the game because, as Novik and Basak write, quote, the correct move at this point, in fact, the only non-backtracking move, is for one hobbit and one orc to take the boat back to the original side of the river. So essentially, while it must be done in order to complete the puzzle, it looks counterproductive because the only way you can finish the puzzle is to cause a temporary net migration of creatures to the wrong side of the river. It's a necessary step, but it actually ends up looking less similar to your goal state than the step before it did. And the studies by Thomas and Greeno both found that people really get hung up at this step. It was the step of the problem where both the probability 
of a of a player making an illegal move and the time taken to decide on the next move suddenly go way up compared to other steps. And Novik and Basak talk about how these studies highlight one of the inherent weaknesses of the hill climbing heuristic. Sometimes in all kinds of problem-solving scenarios, you have to move backwards or laterally in order to reach your end goal. Like, actual mountain climbers know this in a quite literal sense. You can't always reach the highest peak just by going straight up. A lot of times you have to go back down to reach a path that can actually be ascended. Uh, other times you reach what's known as false peaks, which are places that seem like the peak as you're ascending until you get there, and then you realize that you are only at the local highest altitude and there's actually a higher peak just over here. And this means that it really pays to think about what problem-solving methods you're using without realizing it, whether and, and whether those methods are the best suited to the kind of problem you're facing. Uh, the hill-climbing heuristic can be very useful for problems in which the solution space could be represented as a kind of single peak, like one mountain on an otherwise flat plain with an unobstructed slope. If the solution space is like that, then basically, yeah, you just keep trying to go uphill until you get to the highest point. But hill climbing can be ruinous for problems where the solution space could be represented as kind of like a, a landscape with multiple different hills and peaks and valleys. Because if you just keep trying to go uphill, what you're going to do here is end up climbing to the top of whichever hill is closest to your starting position. And then you'll just be stuck there. Because even if you know there's a higher peak you have to get to, you have to go downhill to get to it. So I think what this means for our lives is if you're stuck on a task, it can be really useful to ask yourself, am I inappropriately trying to use the hill climbing heuristic? Do I actually need to temporarily move further away from my goal in order to actually get there? And in myself, one thing that immediately came to mind as an example of where I find myself doing this is uh, sometimes when I'm writing I'm I'm working on a paragraph or a page or something that just does not feel right. Like I know it is not going right and I'm trying to fix it by tinkering around with word choice and junk like that when in actuality the best path to my goal would be of course to just delete what I have and start over in a different way. Yeah, sometimes I uh I think I encounter this when I'm um when I'm when I'm painting, like if I'm working on a miniature and like you reach that point where I mean, I guess with the miniature, it's it's sometimes harder. I mean, yeah, you can you can uh, just paint over everything and apply a new base coat. You can use something to to strip the existing paint off of it. But like like sometimes you're kind of um, continuing to work with the same problems that you've created mm -hmm. for yourself on a you know as far as a particular detail on the figure goes. Yeah, you're stuck on the local hill when what you really need to do is go all the way down and find a different hill. Yeah, yeah, probably like get a new figure and just a new copy of the same figure and begin again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, some ways around this in computer science can involve algorithms that insert various kinds of random leaps or random steps in sampling to make sure that you're actually moving toward the global solution rather than the local solution. And in a way, I think this is this is sort of the algorithmic way of characterizing what we would call outside the box thinking, you know, thinking that lands on strategy strategies that may take you pretty far away from the local peak in order to possibly find out that there is a much higher peak somewhere else. And a certain amount of randomness or willingness to be apparently counterproductive, at least for the moment, can go a long way. 
and this is clearly what's been found like in in these studies using the hobbits and orcs problem because it's like people really get stuck at the part that the part that they have the hardest time figuring out is the part where you have to move multiple pieces away from your end state in order to actually get there coincidentally i think the dangers represented by the hill climbing heuristic are actually played out in literal topography in the hobbit and lord of the rings for example i recall in fellowship of the ring there's a lot of frustration about the straightest paths to Mordor being blocked, such as when they try to they try to go across the Redhorn Pass of Caradhras, and they're blocked by bad weather, forcing them to backtrack and go a different way. Even though you know they probably should have backtracked earlier, but they they're stuck trying to go this way because it's where they already are. And I can't recall a, a, another specific passage, but it seems like there are sim- similar problems in the two towers. You know, like uh, Frodo and Sam having to go down to go up, or having to go back to go forward, and so forth. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm remembering that now. So anyway, uh, keep the hobbits and orcs in mind. If you're stuck on a problem, uh, consider, are are you hill climbing? Are you refusing to send <laughs> your hobbit and orc back across the river, even though that's what you have to do? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I'd, I'd heard of this before. Um, but now uh, now I guess I'll, I'll, I'll think of all problems uh, in my life as being uh, ones where orcs might potentially eat me. <laughs> Or one where you're the orc and you're going to fill up on Hobbit and ruin your dinner. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, call this uh, this episode here. Um, obviously, we didn't get to you know get into everything about orcs uh, within Tolkien's creations or within creations that have uh, you know come in the wake of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so we would love to hear from everyone out there if you have particular thoughts on on anything here related to Tolkien scholarship, to, you know, how we use orcs in popular culture, uh, you know, what, wh- wh- why we're fascinated by them, what we should be doing with them, etc. cetera. Uh, we, you know, we're always open to, to hear from everybody. Uh, we're always uh, happy to be corrected as well. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Uh, just rate, review, and subscribe. Those are great ways to help out the show. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.